The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico, from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. The History of North America podcast series is an incredible historical adventure that chronicles the thrilling, action-packed tale of a continent. I invite you to come along for the ride. Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 50, Cajamarca. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. Remember to follow the show on social media at Inca Podcast on Twitter and A History of the Inca Facebook page. You can stay up to date on the show and check out some pictures. I've been much better about posting pictures lately, so if you'd like to see some pictures from the sources I pour over, go follow the show. Also, don't forget the show has an email. Incapodcast at gmail.com is where you can send questions or articles to me. I haven't done a question episode in quite some time, but there will be one in the future. So if you have a question about the show, a particular topic, or just want to say that I'm doing a great job, feel free to send me an email. Finally, a big shout out to the show's patrons. I want to thank you all so much for supporting the show. You have helped ensure that this podcast continues on. And this week, I want to recognize Ashley Compton, who recently joined in supporting the show financially. Thank you very much, Ashley, and for the kind words as well. No matter what level you are giving at, thank you. And if you want to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash podcast and pledge at a level that suits you. And thanks. Now then. Last time Pizarro was able to secure the funds and men necessary to make his return to Tumbes. Upon his return, he came into conflict with the locals, but was able to move inland. He set up a colony at San Miguel and even began to reorganize several towns and villages into a structure that suited Spanish needs. Some groups were quite alright by this. They had issues with the Inca some with Atahualpa specifically, and so they welcomed the Christians. However, some resisted and were subdued. But upon hearing of Atahualpa, his location, and the civil war that had been taking place for years now, Pizarro decided that it was time to find this king. So he and his men marched through the jungle, across deserts, and up into the mountains. Atahualpa, for his part, sent messengers and supplies to the Christians, and the two men, Pizarro and Atahualpa, corresponded in this way several times, bestowing gifts and making promises of friendship, while at the same time beating their own chests. We left off with Pizarro and his men, who had just seen the large Inca camp across the valley, 
entering Cajamarca near dusk on November 15, 1532. So let us return to them now. Enjoy. It is important to describe the layout of the valley and the town of Cajamarca itself. What is a shame is that nobody traveling with Pizarro had the thought of drawing a map of the valley or of the town. This is incredibly unfortunate given the fact that, peering at the town today, there are few structures left that have been identified as pre-Columbian. Even the description that Jerez gives reveals quite little in the exact layout of the town. However, there is a colonial-era image of a map of the town posted on the website. Just keep in mind that this map is not quite oriented correctly. Nevertheless, it is important to understand the layout of the valley and town as it was when Pizarro entered. So here it goes. On the east side of the valley, across the plain, is the Inca camp. On the west side sits Cajamarca, nestled at the foot of the mountains, but elevated over the plain below. Two rivers run on either side of the town, one on the southern side and one to the north. The north cuts the valley in two and separates Cajamarca and the Inca camp. Each of these rivers has a bridge spanning it allowing access to the town from both the north and the south. The Akiawasi is elevated overlooking the town and sits on the western side. Moving east from there is a large fortified hill with a winding staircase leading up to it. This fortress was carved into the hill but had a spiraling wall going to its top. Just northeast of this fortified hill is the main square, enclosed by a wall and with a fountain at its center. Jerez describes it as larger than any square found in Spain. If our map within our head is oriented north, the square is more of a rhombus, and the two entrances would be on the southeast and northwest sides, respectively. The southeast is oriented towards the plain and the Inca camp in the distance. The entire square is enclosed with a wall of stone and is described as being the height of three men. We are also told that there are houses opening up onto the square. We aren't really given the exact location of the houses. However, using the colonial era map, we can judge them to at least be on the northwest and southwest part of the square, extending the length of it. On the southeastern wall, which again is oriented toward the plain and the Inca camp, is a small fortress. A staircase leads from the square up to this fort, so the structure overlooks the entire square. We don't know if this was a true fort or more of a tower, how tall it was, or where exactly on the wall it was located. Was it more northeast or southwest? Was it near the entranceway? We just don't know. 
What we do know is that Pizarro had some of his men scout out the town. They found 400 to 500 men guarding the Akiawasi as the women inside made chicha for the Inca camp. This account comes from an anonymous member of the expedition who would go on to publish his account just a few months before Jerez back in Spain. It is always nice to get another first-hand account of events, even if it is from the same side. This author was quite honest, saying that as some men scouted the town, soon the governor and his men made camp in considerable fear of the great force of Indians forming the camp. It was as camp was being set up that Hernando de Soto approached Pizarro, who was eagerly awaiting word of Atahualpa's impending arrival, and asked if he could ride to the Inca camp. Pizarro granted the request, and Soto took several riders and began to ride across the valley. It was as he left that hail began to fall upon the valley, no doubt making the situation all the more uncomfortable for all. However, as soon as Soto had left, Pizarro called over his brother, Hernando Pizarro, and ordered him to take some men and ride after Soto. Pizarro feared that if Soto and his men were attacked, that they wouldn't stand a chance. But with a few more horses, perhaps the odds would improve. As his brother and Soto rode off, the governor ordered his men to take shelter in the houses along the square. However, he ordered Candia and the rest of the artillery to occupy the small fortress on the southeastern wall overlooking the square. No sooner had this been done did a messenger show up from Atahualpa's camp. The messenger informed Pizarro that he and his men could lodge anywhere they pleased for the night, except for the fortress overlooking the plaza. He then asked that Pizarro excuse Atahualpa for not coming that evening, for the Sapa Inca was fasting. Pizarro replied that he understood, though he was eager to meet the leader of the Inca. With this, the messenger made his way back to the Inca camp, but Candia and his men remained in the small fortress. Meanwhile, Soto and Hernando were covering ground as they traveled towards the Inca camp, which was about a league away. They had to cross two rivers on their way there, but left their men on the other side of the second river so they didn't alarm the camp. So it was just the two of them and Filippio, the interpreter, who crossed and rode towards Atahualpa. On their way, flanking either side, was the Inca army. Pikemen, halberdiers, bowmen, all stood as still as stone as the three rode past. No doubt they were impressive and intimidating, but it could be argued that the men of the Inca army were equally impressed and curious about the beasts on which the three men rode upon. Now Soto was ordered not to provoke an attack, but we have accounts that Soto rode up so brashly that his horse brushed the red tassels of the fringe which sat upon the Sapa Inca's head. For Atahualpa's part, he didn't even flinch as he sat upon his wooden stool, 
which truly impressed the conquistador. The same can't be said for some of Atahualpa's guards, who retreated back in fear. Filippio came forward and informed Atahualpa that Soto was a captain and that the governor was eagerly awaiting the Inca's presence in the town and hoped that the Sapa Inca would meet with him soon. But no answer was given. The Sapa Inca didn't even look up at the captain. Hernando Pizarro, who was sitting back just a bit, rode a bit closer. The interpreter then introduced Hernando, telling Atahualpa that this was the governor's brother. That seemed to get a response from the Inca, who looked up towards Hernando and said, Mazalbilica, a captain I have on the river of Turacara, sent to say that you ill-treated the caciques and put them in chains, and he sent me a collar of iron, and they say that he killed three Christians and a horse. But I intend to go tomorrow to see the governor and to be a friend of the Christians, because they are good. Needless to say, Hernando Pizarro did not take kindly to this comment and claimed that Malzabilica, who was the cinchi in the area of the new colony of San Miguel, was a liar. That the Christians only made war upon those who sought it out. To this, the Sapa Inca asked if the Christians would accompany him on making war on such a rebellious cinchi. Hernando stated that all that would be necessary to take care of this cinchi is ten Christian horsemen. To this, Atahualpa left and ordered drinks to be brought for himself, Soto, and Hernando Pizarro. We are told that the two Spaniards kindly refused to drink, claiming that they were fasting. However, Atahualpa insisted, and at the very least, the two conquistadors pretended to drink from the gold vessels. Food was also offered, and again, the two conquistadors refused. But we are told some of the Yanacona encouraged them to eat as a sign of friendship. It is unclear if they actually ate this food or not. Either way, the three men, Soto, Hernando Pizarro, and Filippio, soon took their leave. They rode with haste through the camp once more, as it was quickly getting dark and they wished to be back at Cajamarca before the night overtook them. As they rode through the camp, the silent Inca army stood outside their tents, in the elements, weapons in hand, watching. When the contingent of horsemen returned, Soto quickly informed Pizarro of the entire exchange between themselves and the Inca. Jerez says that Soto estimated there being 30,000 men in the camp. The anonymous account says that Pizarro's men were told 40,000, but that this was only to encourage them. In reality, it was nearly 80,000. Personally, I believe Jerez a bit more, as I find that the anonymous account tends to embellish their story from time to time. But what did it matter if it was 30,000 or 80,000? There were only about 200 Christians. They were drastically outnumbered, and they all knew it. In a foreign land, in an unfamiliar town, with a large, potentially hostile 
group just a league away, Pizarro and his men slept close to their weapons the night of November 15th, 1532. I doubt many slept at all. The sun arose the next day, and according to one account, the messages between Pizarro and Atahualpa began to fly. The next morning there was nothing but coming and going of messengers to the camp of Atahualpa. We are told very little about many of the messages, but one in particular from Atahualpa caught the attention of Jerez. My lord has sent me to tell you that he wishes to come and see you, and to bring his men armed. For the men whom you sent yesterday were armed, and he desires you send a Christian with whom he may come. No doubt the Sapa Inca had an argument to approach Cajamarca with his men armed. Soto and Hernando Pizarro approached armed, though they did leave their men on the other side of the river. Still, they had their weapons and were within an arm's reach of Atahualpa the day before. As for the request of a Christian, it could be seen as a friendly gesture or the ability to take a hostage to ensure Inca security. But if the Sapa Inca expected to get everything he had wished, he was mistaken, for Pizarro replied, Tell your lord to come when and how he pleases, and that in whatever way soever he may come, I will receive him as a friend and brother. I do not send him a Christian, because it is not our custom to send from one lord to another. With this reply, the messenger left, and within a short time of his departure, the Inca camp began to stir. Slowly, movement was occurring on the other side of the valley, as men formed up and began to move. Again, in short order, another messenger arrived from the Inca camp for Pizarro. Atahualpa sends me to say he has no wish to bring his troops armed, and though they will come with him, many will come without arms, because he wishes to bring them with him and to lodge them in the town, and they are to prepare a lodging for him in the plaza, where he will rest, which is the house known as the House of the Serpent, because there is a serpent with stone within it. To which Pizarro replied, So let it be, and I pray that he may come quickly, for I desire to see him. Once again, it is unfortunate we only have these couple exchanges between Atahualpa and Pizarro that day. Whatever each one's true intentions were, whatever one had really planned for the other, the exchanges between the two of them are fascinating. They are very much trying to get a feel for each other and what the other's true purpose for meeting really was. At this time, there were still options for both. Peace, war, cooperation. I have little doubt that both Atahualpa and Pizarro had a desired outcome for their coming meeting. Whether they were committed to that desired outcome is difficult to say at this point, but the time for a decision was quickly running out. Yet still it must have felt like an eternity. The Inca camp took nearly half the day to mobilize everything, especially since there were only a few places to cross the rivers running through the valley, creating choke points that delayed the Inca's approach. 
but to the conquistadors in the town, it seemed as if the whole plain was alive and moving towards them. No doubt it was mesmerizing to witness the Inca break camp and move towards Cajamarca, but Pizarro soon divided his men and assigned them to houses to occupy that were on the square. Hernando Pizarro took 14 to 15 horsemen. Hernando de Soto had 15 to 16 horsemen accompanying him. A captain by the name of Sebastian de Benalcazar commanded a majority of the infantry. Pedro de Candia kept his post in the small fortress overlooking the square. With him were eight to nine arquebus men and one small cannon pointed towards the plain and the approaching Inca. Finally, Pizarro took two to three horsemen and 25 infantrymen and also stashed himself away in one of the houses. All were ordered not to show themselves until signaled. Now there were a couple lookouts keeping an eye on the approaching Inca. If they suspected that the Inca intended to attack, they were to give a signal. Once given, the entire force of conquistadors were to ride out and charge. As the Inca drew closer and closer, we were told that Pizarro went from house to house, checking on the readiness of his men, encouraging them and telling them that God would help those who worked in his service even in their greatest need. Just a day ago, Pizarro had entered Cajamarca, and now it was the Inca arriving to the town, with the sun getting low in the sky. The conquistadors sent a Spaniard to Atahualpa to ask the Sapa Inca to come to the square before it got dark. The messenger completed his task and returned to Pizarro to inform him that Atahualpa signaled that he would be arriving shortly to the square. However, the messenger also informed Pizarro that the first contingent of men carried arms of slings, stones, and clubs under their clothes. With this, the messenger returned to his post, and the Inca entered. From Jerez, first came a squadron of Indians dressed in a livery of different colors, like a chessboard. They advanced, removing the straws from the ground and sweeping the road. Next came three squadrons in different dresses, dancing and singing. Then came a number of men with armor, large metal plates, and crowns of gold and silver. Among them was Atahualpa, in a litter lined with plumes of macaws' feathers of many colors, and adorned with plates of gold and silver. Many Indians carried it on their shoulders on high. Next came two other litters, and two hammocks in which were some principal chiefs, and lastly, several squadrons of Indians with crowns of gold and silver. The first group that entered moved aside to give space to the next. The second group gave space for the litters, and so on, until the retinue was fully inside the square. Now I should say, I highly doubt this is the entire Inca camp, but it was a very large force in this now crowded plaza. Yet, with it so crowded, it was devoid of one thing, the Christians. It is said that Atahualpa, who was brought to the center of the square, asked the captain where they all were. 
To which the captain replied that the Christians were afraid and were hiding in the houses. At this time, several Inca ran up the stairs of the small fortress. They took a lance with a banner on it and placed it in its holding on the fort. The explanation for this is that the raising of the banner was a sign that the Sapa Inca was now residing within the town. Whether those that raised the banner noticed the men inside the fortress is not clear. Given that no alarm was raised, we can only assume that the Christians and their artillery were overlooked. It is at this point that Pizarro turns to Father Friar Vincent de Valverde and asks him if he wished to go and speak to the Inca. Valverde went, along with the soldier Hernando de Aldana and the interpreter Martin. With the air tense and silence around them, the three Christians approached the Sapa Inca. When they were close enough, Valverde, with a cross in one hand and a breviary in the other, addressed Atahualpa. I am a priest of God, and I teach Christians the things of God, and in like manner I come to teach you. What I teach is that which God says to us in this book. Therefore, on the part of God and of the Christians, I beseech you to be their friend, for such is God's will, and it will be for your good. Go and speak to the governor who awaits for you. Here we are told that Atahualpa then asks for the book that Valverde held. The friar handed it over to him, but the book was clasped, and the Inca, never seeing a book before or knowing how to open it, struggled to do so. For Valverde's part, he reached out to assist the Sapa Inca, but Atahualpa gave the friar a whack on the arm, forcing the latter to recoil his offer of help. Finally, though, Atahualpa opened the book and leafed through its contents, but after a few moments, tossed the book to the ground. Speaking through the interpreter, Atahualpa glared at Valverde and said, I know well how you have behaved on the road, how you have treated my chiefs and taken the cloth from my storehouses. To which Valverde replied, The Christians have not done this. For some Indians took the cloth without the knowledge of the governor, and he ordered it to be restored. Atahualpa then responded, making it clear that he wanted everything taken to be returned immediately. I will not leave this place until they bring it all to me. With that, Valverde, Aldana, and Martin walked back to the house where Pizarro sat upon his horse and recounted the exchange to the conquistador. But Atahualpa was not done. He said something to his retinue, which got them all talking. It is not clear what was said, but our sources believe it was a directive, ordering his men to be prepared. Meanwhile, after listening to Valverde's account of his meeting with Atahualpa, Pizarro looked to ensure his men were ready for what was to come. He then drew his sword and burst through the doorway of the house, shouting, Santiago! With the signal given, the cannon and the arquebuses fired as trumpets rang out. The horsemen and infantry from the other houses charged, the bells on the horses adding to the cacophony. 
The noise and the sight of the charging horses scared many in the Inca party, and they clamored against the wall of the square, which actually gave way and collapsed. The conquistadors cut into the Inca, killing, wounding, and maiming scores of men without a thought. As one side rode into the line, another pressed on as well, mowing down more and more. Pizarro and his horsemen made a direct line for the litters. Not knowing which one was Atahualpa, Pizarro had ordered his brother Juan to take one of the litters, which happened to be the leader of the Chincha, that coastal group that we discussed back in episode 28. He was soon overrun and killed. Pizarro beelined for what turned out to be Atahualpa's litter. When he reached it, Pizarro grabbed the Sapa Inca's arm, but couldn't pull him down. So Pizarro and his men hacked at the hands of the litter bearers, severing them and forcing the litter down. One Christian rose and attempted to land a killing blow on Atahualpa, but Pizarro was able to block it, injuring his hand and saving the life of the Inca. But with his target now acquired, Pizarro and the men immediately surrounding him made for the safety of the buildings in the town as the rest of the Christians drove the Inca out of Cajamarca, slaughtering as they went. The battle in the plaza of Cajamarca lasted only about 30 minutes, and estimates for the number of dead are over 2,000, with many wounded, with all of those who had died coming from the side of the Inca. Zero for the Christians. From an Inca perspective, the events of November 16, 1532, could have been prevented, and we can lay much of that blame on the Sapa Inca. Atahualpa clearly underestimated Pizarro and his forces. He had little knowledge of the Christians' technology, such as the arquebus and the artillery, which must have sounded like Iapa, the god of thunder, cracking his sling in their very midst. There was also the armor which many of the conquistadors wore into the battle, making many of the Inca weapons quite useless. Atahualpa also underestimated the tactics of his opponents. He didn't consider the horsemen, which he had just witnessed the day before, charging at a line of men. Considering what Hernando de Soto did to him, charging and stopping his horse just enough so he touched the tassels of Atahualpa's fringe, the Sapa Inca should have recognized the potential use of such an animal. But the major tactical blunder which Atahualpa made was entering Cachamarca in the first place. He took a large number of men, whether they were armed or not, and packed them into a confined space. By doing that, the Inca numbers accounted for nothing. And honestly, Atahualpa's curiosity simply got the better of him. He could have killed or captured Pizarro and his men at nearly any point on their trek to Cachamarca. There were plenty of opportunities for an ambush. The steep and narrow mountain paths would have been an ideal chance to send some of Pizarro's forces careening down a mountainside. Instead, Atahualpa was curious. He wanted to meet these foreigners and he paid for it dearly. While reading and researching for this podcast, and even well beforehand, 
I've always found myself critical of Atahualpa and his actions leading up to and during the events of November 16th. And although he certainly bears responsibility, I've come to learn that some of his actions, though we may be critical of them, would have made quite a bit of sense to the Sapa Inca at the time. Let us discuss the superior numbers to force groups into submission. It was a common part of Inca diplomacy to appear over the horizon with a large force to intimidate the other side into reconsidering their options. Do you really want to fight a force two, three, or ten times your size? Perhaps we can work out a deal. I have little doubt that the same idea was present in the Inca camp. While the exact numbers vary depending on what source you read, there is little doubt that there were tens of thousands of Inca soldiers at Cajamarca. That force, while a fraction of the entire Inca army, since many were at Cusco at this time, was meant to intimidate the conquistadors, and it certainly gave them pause according to sources. Now recall that in Andean warfare, fortified positions always relied on an overwhelming force to break the defenses. There were no siege engines. A bloody assault was always necessary to take a hilltop fortress. But once they were in it, it was nearly, and I stress nearly, always a sure victory. Being elevated over the valley with gates, walls, and even bridges fording the rivers, Cajamarca was a fortress itself. However, the Inca didn't have to assault it. Instead, they were allowed to walk right over the bridges, enter the gates, and into the main square with their overwhelming force. In terms of Andean warfare, the hard part was over. The Inca were inside. Victory was nearly theirs. Finally, we need to address the route of the Inca army. The men in Atahualpa's retinue had never heard the noise of an arquebus, let alone a cannon. As I mentioned earlier, it would have been a nerve-rattling moment to hear those guns and artillery go off at such a close range, the sound bouncing off the stone masonry of the plaza. Of course, horses were completely foreign to them as well. Sure, some of the Inca camp had seen Soto and Hernando right in the previous day, but it is quite different when they are charging straight at you than simply riding by. Then there is the fact that Atahualpa was seized quite quickly when the battle broke out. As I've stated numerous times before, discipline in the Inca army, or any Andean army for that matter, was not its strong suit. Once a leader was captured, the army tended to collapse in retreat. No doubt the sound of the artillery and the sight of the horses had its intended effect on the Inca, which was to terrify them and create confusion. But the seizure of Atahualpa was a blow that the army could not recover from. So it acted as any Andean army had up to that point when its leader was captured. It routed. When taking a closer look at those factors, one can see how Atahualpa might build his case for the actions he took at Cajamarca and why events played out the way that they did. The Sapa Inca's decisions were based on the military, strategic, 
and cultural norms of Andean warfare. They were just drastically ill-suited for that moment, a moment that caused the end of the Inca Empire. And this is where the story of the Inca ends, if this were a textbook. Indeed, many histories, including ones from several scholars, which I cite regularly for this show, end their tales here, with Atahualpa's capture at Cajamarca. All this, despite the fact that at that moment, nobody realized that this was effectively the end of the Inca Empire. That is the thing about history. Often the gravity of the event isn't truly felt until much later. Of course, this is a podcast, not a textbook, so we will not be stopping at the events of Cajamarca. However, we will not be continuing up to the modern day either. Despite my disagreements with November 16, 1532 being the end of the Inca, I understand the need for authors to end somewhere. Thus, the end of the Inca Empire makes a lot of sense for those folks, but not for me. I feel that there is more of this story to tell. Make no mistake, we are in the last few chapters of this show, as the latter half of 1572 is where our story will end. How long it takes for us to get there is yet to be determined. The story will pause for its usual summer hiatus. I will be doing a lot of reading as we are entering territory that I am much less familiar with. Don't get me wrong, I know the general storyline, but there is a lot of detail that I would like to explore, especially since we will now have first-hand accounts of the events that take place. So how long it will take for us to get to 1572, I've yet to determine. But to fill the void while I am away, there is always the Spanish version of the show if you would like to practice your Spanish listening skills. A huge thanks to Alicia and Jason for all the work that they do on that version of the show. Their dedication is truly amazing. I am aiming to return to the narrative in September. So until then, everyone, thank you for listening and stay safe.